Hello, my name is Helena Gaspard. I'm joining you from the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa. Together with our partners Canada 2020 and Global Progress, we're pleased to launch the Recovery Project. The Recovery Project is all about what happens after the pandemic, how we think about recovering economically, fiscally and institutionally after all of the stresses that our countries and, and certainly its people have endured. And today, our conversation is focusing completely on democracy, on democratic states, on institutions, and on the trust that citizens have relative to those institutions. We're very fortunate to have two big thinkers on this issue, Thomas Carruthers and Rachel Kleinfeld joining us from the Carnegie Endowment for Peace. Thomas Carruthers is the senior vice president, and he is a leading authority in democracy, human rights, governance, the rule of law and civil society. He's a very well-known researcher, and the author of several books on these issues. Dr. Rachel Kleinfeld is an expert in democracy, conflict, and security, and she consults globally on rule of law reform and advises government agencies. And previously, she served on the Foreign Affairs Policy Board that advised the U.S. Secretary of State. We're very pleased to have both of these big thinkers with us today. So hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for our conversation on democracy and the recovery. COVID-19 pandemic has certainly stressed state institutions and global relations. And as we look ahead to recovery, countries are going to be grappling with a variety of issues, some of them anticipated and, and others completely unforeseen. We're pleased to be joined by two guests today who are experts in democracy. They also work on issues of conflict, rule of law and governance. And they're here to help us unpack what some of these issues are that states might face what their implications will be for citizens and certainly for international relations as well. So Thomas Carruthers and Rachel Kleinfeld, a welcome and thank you for joining us in the context of the Recovery Project today. Thanks for having us. So Thomas, why don't we get started here on the question of centralization. And what I'd really like to discuss right off the top is this question of centralization of power. And we're seeing this in countries all over the world where central governments or one government certainly centralizing power to help respond to the immediate emergency of the pandemic. And what I would love to hear from you is what we might want to be mindful of or think about or watch for in the context of a recovery. Are we anticipating a rebalancing? Are we anticipating perhaps more authoritarian or illiberal states trending more so? Help us understand what things are looking like globally right now. I think it's useful to distinguish between two types of situations. The first is where a government has existing powers that give it the ability to institute centralized measures, say the French government, which wants to impose a lockdown and can do so in a central manner using existing legislation or an emergency act under existing legislation versus cases of governments that are creating new powers for themselves, taking advantage to pass new laws or issue new kinds of decrees. Everyone's been pointing to the Hungarian government, but there are others as well that are extending their power by closing down courts in some cases, closing down parliaments, looking for greater powers and building those powers into new structures as opposed to just exercising existing powers. So I think it's an important distinction to make because then when it comes to going back to normal and recovering, easy enough in the case of a country like France, will lift the lockdown and go back to normal, but harder to do in countries that have grabbed new powers for the sake of really political control in a time of crisis. So Rachel, if we can maybe follow up a bit on Thomas's point there on the differentiating structures in states and the different ways in which 
states tend to respond to pandemics and certainly to recovery as well. You had a very compelling piece that came out. I mean, you framed it as, you know, who responds better, authoritarian regimes or liberal ones. But you actually got to the issue of confidence and trust in institutions. And I'm hoping you can help us through those lenses better understand if recovery um, will reconstitute or, or force a reformulation or a rethinking of trust and confidence in those institutions. I think, again, it's going to be very differential in different sorts of states right now. I think those of us who lived through parts of the Cold War are used to thinking of democracy and trust as a package and authoritarian governments and lack of trust as another package. That's simply not the case anymore. China is the highest trust country in the world. The United States is quite low trust right now, both trust in government, but also trust across uh, the citizenry, the interpersonal trust, what's called bridging capital as opposed to bonding. And you see within the developed democracies in the OECD, very differential levels of trust. It's been on the downturn since the 2008 financial crisis in most countries, but not uniformly. So Germany is much higher trust than France, for instance. And you can see that in how it's been playing out. Now, Graham Teske has a really interesting piece where he's worried that states will struggle to retain legitimacy if they use a lot of coercive power. And he might be correct, but I'm actually worried about the opposite, that in some democracies, if greater coercive power assists in the efforts to actually corral the crisis quickly and get the economy running again, citizenry will be quite happy to cede that power. And what you'll see is trust in governments going along with more coercive measures and more centralized power and retreating from governments that have lower capacity, but also lower trust. So I think this can break down in a lot of different ways, but one way that is not useful is the old democratic authoritarian split. That's a really interesting, I suppose, reformulation of the way we traditionally consider these issues. And I think what becomes particularly important for a number of us to consider is this idea that if centralization is working, will citizens allow it to keep going? And one of the issues I think that's been coming up on the sidelines is the question of security and what those shifts in understanding of perhaps the state's role and shifts in, as you raised, Rachel, considerations of power, how that might impact the security conversation. You know, we think back to something like 9-11 and the changes to things as basic as travel, how those changes continue to impact our lives today. Do you think that in the context of recovery, that our conception of security may actually shift too. You know, will we be willing to give up more or will we be doing things differently? Say, you know, checking temperatures as we're being screened for explosives or perhaps have other means involved. When I started my career, it was actually in the wake of 9-11 and the security community was extremely worried about terrorism and about bioterrorism. And so we ran lots of war games on anthrax and the use of smallpox and so on. People regarded pandemics, however, as not mainstream. That, I think, reflected a bias that real security concerns were caused by malevolent actors, people who wanted to hurt you, rather than malignant forces like a disease, climate change. People who thought about malignant forces were considered kind of on the fringes of the security community. And what you're seeing now I find very interesting, which is that many in the traditional security community are trying to shoehorn the pandemic into the same old boxes. So you see both in the U.S. and in China, people trying to claim that this is bioterror, which is, of course, misinformation. 
but they're more comfortable thinking of a military weapon that's gotten out of hand rather than a disease that happens and will quite likely happen again in our lifetimes. So I hope that it pushes a change in the security community, but I'm not positive it will. As militaries get hit by the coronavirus, perhaps then governments will start to rebalance towards some of these non-traditional threats. But my guess is it will happen through the path of it affecting their military preparations and abilities rather than through it affecting their population's human security. I mean, a way to look at this, I think, is that traditionally we think of security threats as, you know, person versus person. And this is nature versus person. I think some people are hoping this might allow, push, prompt humans to realize that we have a deeper issue, which is mankind's relationship to nature. And this is about that. And link it more to climate change and to other issues, rather than to fall back into a post 9-11 mindset and say, oh my gosh, we're back into a security crisis. We need to trigger the same frameworks and institutions and mechanisms that we had then. So Thomas, perhaps building on that question of individual rights, the concepts of liberty, of movement and the like, how would you expect different types of states to grapple with those considerations in the context of a recovery as they shift from, say, emergency response to perhaps longer-term considerations? Are we expecting things like fear to be a license for potentially more authoritarian practices? Well, certainly when people feel their well-being threatened, they're willing to give up certain rights to protect it. That's an age-old dilemma of how to strike the right balance. What we see this time are certain rights like privacy that are really in question as new surveillance measures are being put in place by some governments, particularly cell phone tracking or reading data that might be gathered through certain platforms or cell phones and other things. What we see is the question of whether as people accept these mechanisms now, get used to them, whether or not they'll say, you know, actually the trade-off's fine. I don't really mind if you're watching my location that much if it's for the greater good. Because of the enhancement of technology over the last 5, 10, 15 years, we have a new range of incursions onto rights that we have that can be sacrificed for the sake of security. You know, this is in a sense our first crisis. 9-11 was a long time ago. It was 19 years ago, and we were in a different technological age than we are now. And so we're seeing, in a sense, the first sort of global security crisis, in this case, of a type being carried out in the postmodern world of technological futurism. So as you're explaining, Thomas, we're in a very different context. There will be different responses, say, to this type of recovery than there may have been to past crises or or to past instances. Rachel, perhaps we'll start with you on this question here. And Thomas, please feel free to jump in. So what will international cooperation look like? What should it look like to actually start to support that economic recovery, that diplomatic recovery to rethink or to have a, a reconstituted world order? I think there's the world we wish was reality and the world that we might have as reality. And unfortunately, I think there might be a very large gap between the two. The level of international cooperation needed to deal with a transnational problem like this is vast. It would be very nice if the G20 and the United Nations Security Council and other international bodies were able to come together and say, right, this is going to have significant effects on conflict that go both directions, actually. Can we use it to create stronger peace processes in certain countries where people are more scared of the pandemic on both sides? This is going to have severe effects on pharmaceuticals, not simply COVID-19 treating pharmaceuticals, but the entire supply chain, which largely originates in China. How do we get the supply chain to be more decentralized in the future while also pumping more supplies right now? Medical equipment, quite similarly. And then in terms of the economics, how do we 
move money to engine economies so that they can restart the rest of the world while providing enough humanitarian aid that this isn't a gigantic depression. So, you know, those are a handful of things that we would like the international system to be doing. Unfortunately, the international system doesn't seem to be doing that. And I think certainly it doesn't help that the U.S. and China are using this to further and deepen the loggerheads they were at before, the trade war they were at before, the somewhat racially charged rhetoric that was being lobbied before. And so with the U.S. out of its role that it usually holds as global organizer, global puller together of other countries, it would behoove other countries to step up. And I think it's a moment now for middle powers, the Australias of the world, the Canadas of the world, various European countries to really try to organize more of that response that's needed. And I would hope to see that. I think it would be good for the world to have a more regional power structure at this point. You know, we were already in a deglobalizing moment in the world in the last three or four years. And in a way, it's one of those ironies of history that this virus hits and it's a deglobalizing virus in the sense that, do you remember after 9-11, there was just a tremendous sense of solidarity that occurred. The Russian president called the American president and said, how can I help? These days, presidents are not calling each other and asking how they can help. They're trying to steal medical supplies from each other and get what's theirs for themselves. And there's been an extreme, you know, putting up of borders, uh, both mentally and logistically in many ways, and now questioning of global supply chains. Every major country in the world has to be able to produce enough of its own medical supplies, enough of its own pharmaceuticals and everything. And so this virus has a really powerful deglobalizing effect, yet what it requires is the kind of transnational governance that Rachel was talking about. So we have a deep tension here in this crisis that we haven't even really started to come to terms with. I think that characterization, Thomas, of that deep contradiction certainly merits the attention of decision makers, of policy makers, of politicians, combined with the economic issues, Rachel, that you raised related to things as basic as, as supply chains and things as basic as relationships. You know, you mentioned the one between the U.S. and Russia that actually used to be uh, reasonable, solid in the times of crisis that have now become far less so. If you were to look ahead a year from now, what indicators would you be looking at to determine if we are better off than before this pandemic, better off than, say, the deglobalizing and less than a collaborative, less than a supportive context we're operating in in this current situation? Well, I'd look at three things that are very different from each other. You know, this is a crisis of fairness within societies. We'd already been in an era in the last five years of rising attention to inequality and a sense that something's gone wrong with capitalism in many places that's producing a large-scale dislocation and disadvantage against very privileged wealth. And this crisis, again, it's a crisis that accentuates that, you know, who's on the front lines of this? In many cases, it's the person at the grocery store who's working at the grocery store. It's the fireman who's still doing his or her job and so forth. It's people in the working class and the lowest orders of the society who are often there on the front lines helping the rest. And they're taking the hit and they're going to ask for a better deal and they deserve one. And so, first of all, will democracies and other societies come out of this and say, you know, we have to get serious about fairness within societies because that actually hasn't been happening in many places. 
Secondly, whether or not there's really going to be a learning from this and some kind of serious review. After SARS, for example, there was a review in a number of countries who established mechanisms. Or will in the rush to recover and to restart, will we say, well, thank goodness we survived that. There'll be a few commissions here and there, a bit of you know retrospection, but not really a serious effort to come to grips to say, why don't we have an international medical kind of force that can fly in quickly to countries and help isolate, that can move in supplies? Why don't we have large-scale supplies? available that can be shifted around, things like that. And then third, whether or not the emergency kind of abrogation of powers is really starting to lift. And is there an accounting clearly of countries that did undertake power grabs and get held to account for that and are obliged by those who are more democratic to back away from that pattern? So there's lots of ways a year from now I'll be looking to see whether or not are we really moving out of this crisis or has this crisis really damaged us in long-term ways? Fantastic. So we have to think about fairness at a micro level, reviewed whether or not we've learned from the seriousness of the crisis. And then last of all, whether or not there's a greater accounting going on of power and the uses of power. Rachel, would you like to jump in on this? Sure. My list is not so divergent than Tom's, perhaps unsurprisingly. I think the first is inequity and trust. So it's the fairness issue that Tom mentioned, but it's also other forms of inequity and divergence that might fall along existing lines. So for instance, in the United States, it seems pretty clear that the deaths are disproportionately affecting African Americans, that job losses are disproportionately affecting the poor and Hispanics. Those also fall along partisan lines as well as pre-existing fissures of other sorts. The greater those pressures put within countries on pre-existing inequities, the greater tension those democracies are going to be under. So how those pressures formulate and then how well the democracies deal with them. So on this, I'm very much in Tom's camp. The economic effects are one part of the fairness, but basically I see us as in something of a Weimar Germany moment. The young are also disproportionately being pushed out of work here in the United States, at least. It'll be interesting to see how that effect goes around the rest of the world. But can we come out of this with a more oligarchic set of states in which they may be democracies, they may be authoritarian, but economic as well as political power is more centralized. Certain people are much more able to shelter in place and protect themselves, whereas others are out on the front lines. And so the entirety of mortality, life chances, and so on, are all packaged together in a negative fashion versus others who are coming out on top? Or is it a New Deal moment? Can we take this moment and restructure our societies in a fair and more inclusive manner? And then the last one would be the nexus of corruption and conflict. Whenever you have command and control economies or scarcities, you see organized crime growing. We already had a problem with transnational organized crime, and we already had a very serious problem with corruption in the health sector. And so these two things coming together might really strengthen a problem I've written about before, which is these countries that are governed by elites that are in league with criminal forces. And so you end up with systems that I call privileged violence systems in which uh, violence is part of the system rather than a bug in the system. And I'm hoping that we see countries fighting against that and citizens rising up against that, but I worry that we'll see a consolidation and growth of those sorts of organized criminal and political links, particularly in weaker states. Rachel, this is really helpful. So you're going from almost the micro concerns about existing tensions and what those existing tensions inside of countries will do 
under pressure as this period continues? And then second of all, whether or not we'll actually use the crisis as an opportunity, if it will be an opportunity to push for better, perhaps push for improvements to existing structures and existing states, or if there may be a reversion. And then third, you mentioned corruption, but also transnational organized crime. So I think it's a helpful way of considering both elements there. And between the two of you, certainly a number of really important and, and absolutely fascinating indicators to consider. Thomas, Rachel, I think this conversation could go on for far, far longer, and I can only imagine the questions that must be popping up in people's minds right now. Thank you on behalf of us all at The Recovery Project of um, joining us today and for making the time. And we look forward to continuing to follow your writing, uh, your research, and certainly your analysis. Thank you both, Rachel and Thomas, for joining me today. Thank, Thank you. you.